We are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Uh, now, Mark is a, a good teacher. Uh, there's an old saying in preaching that if you want to do some good preaching, you need to get up and tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you need to tell them, and then you need to end by telling them what, they, what you just told them. Well, that's kind of what Mark is doing. He's been talking on the theme of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So let me start out by telling you what I'm going to tell you this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And in just a little bit, I'm going to tell you. And then Mark in chapter 3 has been telling us some of the areas over which Jesus is Lord. Then in chapter 3, he's going to go back and review some of those themes again, and then he's going to expand on them. Uh, so that's where we're going this morning. Now, we have an awful lot of things that I would like to cover, but we'll wait and find out where the Holy Spirit leads us to see what we cover as we go along. So Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue again. Uh, it could be, it doesn't identify which synagogue, most probably it is that synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus kind of had his headquarters. And a man was there who had a withered hand. Now the wording there for withered lets us know that it was drawn in and twisted. And Luke tells us, whenever he gives us his account of this incident, that uh, it is the man's right hand. How did the hand become withered? We don't know. It could have been a, a birth defect. It could have been due to an injury. There is an, an old legend, a Jewish legend from many, many, many years ago, that says that this man was a stonemason uh, and had his hand injured, and, and now he was not able to continue earning a living anymore. We don't know. We just know it is a man with a withered hand. Why is he there that day? Notice verse 2. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Now notice verse, verse 2 again. So they watched him closely. Who are they? Now, if you'll remember, I know you remember every word that I said last week in the sermon. I know you do that. Uh, uh, but it, just, to, just for the sake of, you know, for those of you that weren't here, uh, Mark is setting up five different confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day. The Pharisees, who were the legalists, who had established their own set of laws in addition to the laws that God had established. Uh, and they were very particular about making sure everybody kept those laws that they established. And then the scribes. The scribes were the theologians of the day. Uh, they were the ones who studied intently the Old Testament scrolls and drew out from them and uh, teaching, and they were the ones who interpreted the passages of Scripture for the people. The only problem was, is quite often they were misinterpreting the passages, and they had a tendency to interpret the passages to make sure that they went along with the teaching and laws of the Pharisees. 
rather than teaching just what God said, uh, they would teach the things that men have devised. And unfortunately, that continues to this day. So, now the they is the Pharisees and the scribes. Now notice, they watched him, Jesus, closely. He was under intense scrutiny by the Pharisees and scribes. You see, whether he would heal him, that man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath. Why? So they might accuse him. Now, the Scripture does not say this, okay? So I'm very careful. Anytime I say something that is not actually what the Word of God says, I say, this is Timology, okay? So this is a little Timology based on a lot of study there's a lot of theologians that believe by the wording of this in, in the three gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the man that is there with the withered hand was a plant by the Pharisees and the scribes. They had arranged for him to be there on this Sabbath day just to see what Jesus would do because they knew Jesus. They had been following him around wherever he went. They were always looking for any opportunity they could to bring an accusation against him because they despised him. They saw him as a threat to their status among the Jewish people. So they were always looking for something to accuse Jesus of doing that was contrary to the law. And because they had followed him around everywhere he went, they knew that everywhere he went, he healed people who were sick and diseased. He cast out demons. So he did that with the multitudes out when he went around from town to town. But they wanted to make sure somebody was going to show up in the synagogue that day that would have an obvious problem to see what Jesus would do. Would He heal on the Sabbath? Now remember, last week we introduced from Mark that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because He is our Sabbath rest. Jesus fulfilled all that the Sabbath meant in His life, His death, burial, Resurrection. So, according to the laws that the Pharisees had established, remember I gave you a long, long list of these little tedious laws that they had established last week? Now, according to their even their laws, it wasn't against the law to heal. There's nothing in any of their laws that said it was against the law to heal on the Sabbath. But they did put a stipulation you were only authorized to heal or to do something for someone who was sick or injured if their life was in imminent danger. In other words, if you don't do something, they're going to die. And if they are in that kind of condition, you can do whatever you need to do to stop the bleeding or do whatever it needs to do to keep them from dying. But this man with the withered hand is not in a life-threatening situation. 
I mean, for all practical purposes, Jesus could have waited, the man could have waited till Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, he could have. But they knew the heart of Jesus. When he encountered suffering, he did something to erase it. So they had maybe this man there. Now, whether he was planted there by the Pharisees or scribes, or whether he just happened to be there, this is a divine appointment. Because God is going to use this to teach the people. And now this is the fifth confrontation that Mark gives us between Jesus and these religious leaders. So they're watching him closely. What is he going to do? Is he going to heal this man so that we can publicly bring an accusation against him? Why? They wanted to discredit Jesus before the people, but more than discrediting him, they wanted to bring an accusation that would result if found guilty in his death. Now, as you recall from last week, when we read from Exodus chapter 31, the law that God gave concerning the Sabbath, He said, you shall not work on the Sabbath. And the punishment, you remember the punishment? To violate the Sabbath law God gave? Death. Death. God said, not the Pharisees. God said to violate His Sabbath law that He gave, the punishment was death. So the Pharisees know if they can find Jesus guilty of breaking the Sabbath law openly before everyone, they will have grounds to put Him to death. Now He's already dealt with them about his ability to forgive sin. Remember the man lowered down through the roof? And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees responded, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that was the whole point. He was saying he was God because God alone forgives. They had dealt with him about the fact he was feasting with sinners. The most of the unclean. They had dealt with him about the fact that his, his disciples had plucked the grains from the fields and were eating them and working on Sabbath. But everybody didn't see that. Just them, because they were following, looking for anything they could find to bring accusation. So he's already done several things that to them violated their Sabbath laws, but not out in the big open, like in the middle of a worship service in the synagogue. So the stage is set. Luke, in his account, tells us at this point, the Pharisees then ask him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Or is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Mark doesn't tell us that they said it prior to the healing. Matthew tells us Jesus knew what was in the mind 
minds and the hearts of the Pharisees. How did he know? He's God. Look how Jesus now, they might have set this up, but either way, the man's there. They're watching. And he, Jesus, said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Is he ducking this? Nope. He knows what's in their hearts. He says, You want to deal with this? Let's deal with this. Step forward. The man steps forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill it. But they were silent. Now notice these words. They're important. The Pharisees, remember, legalists, the scribes, deep students of the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the laws of the Old Testament inside and out. They knew all of the Old Testament inside and out. So he asked him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? That's pregnant with meaning. I'm not going to take the time to read it because i got a lot of ground I want to cover this morning. You can go home and read it. Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58. In those two passages, Isaiah the prophet, when talking to the nation of Israel, tells them in those two chapters, literally he says, God despises your Sabbaths. And God despises your festivals. He despises your ceremonies. Even the ceremonies that God had established in His law. He says, it's not that they were bad, but the way they were using them was bad. He says, you are taking the things I meant for my glory and your good, and you have so abused them. You don't come with a heart of love and gratitude on the Sabbath to worship. You don't come and bring your sacrifices with thanksgiving and with brokenness and sorrow over sinfulness. You come in your pride and your arrogance just trying to outwardly prove how good you are. And inwardly, you're just eaten with corruption. You're doing what I commanded, but with the wrong heart. And he says, I despise it. In Malachi, he says, when you gather together on your Sabbaths and your festivals and you bring your offerings God says, you make me sick, and I won't know part of it. In Isaiah, he says, would somebody please close the door of the synagogues and the temple just to keep you out, to keep you from doing what you're doing when you come in? And then he tells them, but what you're to do on the Sabbath, he says, is do good. And take care of the widows and the orphans and those in need. One thing that I think we've all missed, we talk about the Sabbath being a day of rest, but as you read through the Scriptures, 
It's a day of rest, a day of worship, and a day of doing good for those who are hurting. To go do good for, for the... For instance, when we talk about the Lord's Day, we talked last week how the Lord's Day is different from the Sabbath day, and one of the things I left you with is I said, when you get together with your small groups, I wanted you to discuss what's right or wrong for you to do on the Lord's Day. And then I threw out a few examples of things that I, I hear over the years. What about if you, you don't cut your grass on a Sunday, do you, the Lord's Day, and you don't wash your car on the, on the Lord's Day? Uh, here's what you, this is actually what you find when you read Scripture. If you're doing something like that for yourself and your benefit, it's wrong. But if you've got a neighbor, a widow, or someone who's hurting who can't take care of it, and the only time you've got is that day, and you go take care of them and meet their need, that's worship. That's worship. What we do out of love for someone who's hurting. So Jesus asked the question, because these, these scribes, the Pharisees, they knew Isaiah. They knew Malachi. In there he says, take the Sabbath. Don't do what you're doing with the heart you're doing it, but do good for those who are hurting on the Sabbath. God had said that 700 years before Jesus. 700 years before Jesus. They should have known. So he asked the question, is it lawful to do good or to do evil? He was going to do something good. They were the ones who were doing evil. That's one of the reasons we think they set this up. They had evil intent in their heart. They were looking for a way to accuse. They were sitting there in their pride and in their arrogance. And notice, they hadn't been doing anything to help this man with a withered hand. On the Sabbath day, we have no record of them going to his house and helping out his family. If he was a stonemason and couldn't earn a living, how's his family making it? Oh, we don't see them going to do anything for this man. They're only concerned about bringing accusation. Y'all ever know people like that? That live to criticize? Y'all, I'm sure y'all don't know. I, well, y'all just hang out with good Christian people, but so I know y'all don't. You know, but man, I tell you, there are people I know, people I know, some of my family members. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, they kind of live to be able to point out the flaws in everybody else. In trying to always point out the flaws in everybody else, it's not even so much you're trying to point out their weaknesses. What you're trying to do is make yourself look good in comparison. Why do people do that? Oh, because they know how everything ought to be done. No, pride. Pride. And you show me a person that's got pride, and I'll show you they got a whole lot more things going on in their heart and life than just always pointing out the flaws in everybody else. they got a host of things. Because every sin has as its root pride. Pride. In churches, 
you have people in churches. Now, I thank the Lord. The last several years, I've had some great deacons in my church. I've had in my last church and in this church, I have no have had no complaints the last several years for, for the deacons I've had. So if any of you are listening online, please know I'm not referring to the last several years. But I, as a pastor, I would get physically ill the day of a deacon's meeting. I would. My stomach would get all churned up and all that kind of stuff because I knew when I went to that deacon's meeting I was going to have to sit there and be tore apart. You know, it's just, just, that's, the, that's the way it went sometimes. That's not good. I would remind you as Christians, we're called to be encouragers. And love covers a multitude of sins. And whatsoever things are good and lovely and noble and of good report, we're to think on these things. I've known husbands that live to criticize their wives, and I've known some wives. I don't know how the men's took it. I mean, I really, seriously. I mean, I, don't do that. That is anything but loving. And then parents, they're always trying to catch their kids doing wrong. Parents, try to catch your children doing something right and praise them for it. Okay, I mean, encourage them. Let them know. Yeah, of course, you got to deal with the uh, stuff, but always try to find the positive and the good. But how Jesus had that problem with people always trying to criticize. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Why did he say that? I mean, just good or evil, it sounded like. It was, because remember, the intent behind what they're doing is they're wanting to kill Him. They're wanting to kill Jesus. They're wanting to murder Him. Put Him to death. But they're trying to find some justifiable way to do it. So He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do evil? But here on the Sabbath, you're filled with evil and murder. And I'm here trying to do good and to save life. And when he looked around at them, he loved them. He had compassion on them. And was gentle, meek, and mild. Some of y'all really need to take a look at Scripture about what it says about Jesus because you've created an image of Jesus that has nothing to do with what the Bible says about Jesus. Was Jesus loving? Absolutely. Was He compassionate, merciful, and all that kind of... Yes! But He was also holy. And He's righteous. And He's just. And now He is justifiably angry at their pride, at their arrogance, at their evil, at their lack of compassion. Rather than trying to do something to help this man with a withered hand, they're using him for their own purposes. They try to kill the one who's the very person who's their Messiah, whose God come to be with them. So he, he looked around at them with anger. 
Did you know the Word of God says? Doesn't Jesus just love the whole world? Doesn't He love the whole world? No. Did you know the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day? He is angry with the wicked every day. I won't go. All right. And he looked around at them. He's not backing down from them. They watched him closely, and now they are under the scrutiny of the eyes of a holy, righteous God. See, that's the thing. You can always sit there like everything's hunky-dory and you're all that and bag of Oreos, but God knows our hearts. He looked at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. What's interesting here? Jesus is grieved by their sin, but they're not. If only they had seen themselves and been honest with what was going on within them and who they really were. And if they were grieved by their sin, that godly sorrow, that would have led them to repentance. It would have led them to faith, surrender, and they'd have been saved. They'd have been saved. Jesus was grieved for them. And I think He's grieved for all of us. But the question is, are you grieved by your sin? Because we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen, whenever I preach against sin, and you know, kind of highlight it, please understand, I'm not talking about you as if I'm different from you. I'm one of you. I was lost and dead in trespasses and in sin. And I was headed for an eternity in hell. But God in grace one day granted me the ability to see myself as He knew me to be. I was religious. I was, as, I was just as religious. Listen, I was just as religious as these Pharisees and scribes. In my life, I checked off all the religious boxes. I was always in church. I was teaching Sunday school. I was leading youth Christian groups and all that kind of stuff. But it was only God in grace who opened my eyes to help me see. Though I was doing all the religious stuff, I was still lost myself. Had never personally repented of my sin. Confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Placed my faith in Him alone for salvation and surrendered full control of my life to Him. I hadn't done that. That's why Jesus looked at him one day and says, unless you repent, and repentance comes from a godly sorrow over a knowledge of sin that only God can grant. Unless you're grieved, repent. You too will perish. So he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
And what do you think is going to happen? Well, you know what's going to happen. He stretched it out. Even a withered hand obeys the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord over these diseases and things. So he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. We don't know exactly what that hand looked like, what that arm looked like, but according to Scripture, it was in and twisted. It grew that arm. Yeah, let Benny Hand try that one, all right? All right. Every as whole as the other. Now notice, how did the Pharisees respond? Well, praise the Lord and fall down in His feet and acknowledge Him as Lord and Messiah. Is that how they did it? Uh, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Remember how upset they were when Levi, when Matthew got saved, and Jesus was sitting with sinners? Because Matthew had sold himself out to the Romans to be a tax collector. Remember that? The Herodians were Jews who were supporters of Herod and the Romans. And they put their backing and their money behind Herod. Jewish people selling out their own people and supporting the main guy oppressing them, the Herodians. So they plotted with the Herodians against, against Jesus. Now the Pharisees hated the Herodians. They would not be in the same building, much less the same room with the Herodians. They considered them pond scum, okay? The lowest of the low. But they plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy. Destroy Jesus. Pride and anger and hostility and sin makes for strange bedfellows. And folks, I've even seen it in churches where people in church can't get along and they're, you know, the opposite ends of the spectrum from each other. But yet, when they find a common enemy, sometimes it's the pastor, whenever they find a common enemy, they'll begin to work together to try for His undoing. Or you might have seen it in your families. People in the families who are at odds with each other, but when they find a common enemy in the family, they'll work together to try to overcome it. Well, that's what's happening. Now, the interesting thing is, while evil men are making their plans and their plots and their schemes. A sovereign God, the Father in heaven, is actually even using everything that they're doing, even their evilness, to bring about His plan. His plan. His purpose. Why? Because He is Lord. Do you not think Jesus knew exactly what was going on? He knew exactly. And He knew what the Father was up to in His timing. 
He's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, while I'm there, let me just say this. We are living in an evil day. I won't go into the details because I don't even want to highlight the sin. But last night and this morning, just turning on the TV news, the grossest, hideous sin you can imagine is running rampant through our country right now. We're living in an evil day. And everybody's trying to figure out, what do we do about it? We need to write some letters to our congressman. We need to make some signs and let's go out and publicly pick it. Oh, let's do what we can to get this person elected or that person elected because if only we can get this person elected and everything's going to be okay. What is the church to do in the evil day in which we're living? What are we to do? Yep, you ought to pray. Please pray. What else we ought to do? You what? Preach the word. Amen. I, I, I'm telling you, may God take me home with the day ever comes I don't preach his word. If I get up here and say, if I'm not preaching the word, I hope he takes me home. Preach the Word. So we're praying, we're preaching, we're in here praying and preaching. And the world out there is corrupt in sin and headed to hell. So we can preach to the Christians. We can pray as Christians. Question, what impact is it having on them out there? One of the things we're going to pray is, dear God in grace, save those who are lost. Amen? Question, how are they going to get saved? Well, they're going to turn on TV and listen to Benny, and they're going to listen to all those other guys out there, and let's, let's hope that they get to the right station and they stick around long enough. They're out there. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not going to get saved that way. The only way they're going to get saved is if you and me pray, proclaim, and here prepare us and equip us to go out there and talk to them. And when we're talking to them, share the gospel. We'll talk to them about sports. We'll talk to them about the weather. We'll talk to them about our finances. We'll talk to them about our government. None of that's going to save them, folks. Somewhere in there, we've got to talk to them about Jesus. Now, by the way, don't talk to them about religion. Religion is not going to get them anywhere. The Pharisees were religious as you could be. Religion is not going to get you there. And don't talk about religion. They'll even talk about spirituality. But it gets awful quiet and uncomfortable with them sometimes when you start talking about Jesus. Jesus. 
For there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except Jesus. Because he's the only one who lived a sinless life. He's the only one who died and shed his sinless blood as an atonement, a substitutionary atonement. Paid the price for our sin. Received the wrath of God we should have received for our sin. Died in our place. Was buried. Resurrected to prove that the Father accepted the price that He paid for us. Talk to them about Jesus. Now when Jesus did it, what did they do? They crucified Him. When the apostles went out and preached Jesus and talked to people about Jesus, what did they do to Him? They killed Him or put Him in exile. Our early Christians of the first and second century, when they went out and told people about Jesus, what did they do with them? Fed them to lions. When I was in Israel, I was actually in the arena, the, the, the theater. And you could see the lion's cages, the, the animal cages, where they kept them and then let them loose and devoured Christians. And I, we stood on the ground where Christians' blood was shed. They tied them to posts, covered them with pitch, and set them on fire. Nero did to light his garden parties at night. So I want you to understand. Jesus told us, don't be surprised when the world hates you. I was watching a little TV show yesterday for a few minutes when I watched it. They were making fun of Christians. On the one hand, I started to get angry about it. Uh, Hannah said, Jesus told us that's what they're going to do. I'm thankful they see enough Jesus in us that it makes them upset. Question, whose life are you upsetting because they see Jesus in you? I know this is going to sound strange, but in every community I've ever been, you know, someone will bring up a pastor in the area and they'll say, and everybody just loves him to death. There, he doesn't have an enemy anywhere in this town. You know, everybody just loves him. He's a, and I'm thinking, then he's doing something wrong. Seriously. Because anytime you're putting Christ on display, the world is going to respond in anger. Why? Because you're shining light into the midst of their darkness, and they love their darkness because their deeds are evil what the Word of God says. Do you, we're going to see here, I'm not going to get to this this morning, but I'll get to it hopefully next week. And that is, did you know the Bible says you're going to lose family members, you're going to lose fa relationships with family whenever you're living for Jesus the way that you need to live for Jesus? The Word of God says that. If you hadn't lost relationships with some family members because of your relationship with Christ, you're not doing something right. 
I know that sounds odd. You're going to lose relationships with friends. But we live for Him above all things. Out of love for Him. Our prayer is that in those family relationships and friend relationships, that God will get them past and through the anger enough to actually cause them to ask the question, why are they the way they are? Why do they believe what they believe? And to give them a desire to want it. To open up the door for discussions and sharing Jesus. Pharisees and the Herodians, they just wanted him dead. In fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed them from Judea, Jerusalem, Idiomia, from the Jordan, beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. The picture, I know you don't know the geography of these places. Everywhere north of where he was, south of where he was, east of where he was, west of where he was, from up to 175 miles where these places are located. We're flocking to see him. Now remember, they couldn't drive. They walked. They walked 175 miles just to come see Jesus from everywhere. And there's a mix in these areas here of Gentile areas and Jewish areas and mixed areas. Everybody from everywhere was coming to Jesus. And yet, I know a lot of Christians that for one reason or other find it really hard to get up on a Sunday morning and get to church. Listen, we had a couple of people from my last church went to Ethiopia on a mission trip. They went with a, a group. And the, la the lady who happened to be my administrative assistant in my last church was asked to lead a, a ladies' Bible study. Lady women's Bible study. And they said, what we're going to do is you're going to be on the back of a truck and we'll try to set up some sound equipment, run it off of a generator. You'll be on the back of a truck, and you'll be talking to the ladies. So, okay, we'll do that. Now, our church is about this size, maybe just a little bit smaller than this size. That's what she's used to dealing with. Whenever she got to Ethiopia, and they pulled the truck up into the place, they'd been letting people know that they were going to be there, and she was going to be leading a Bible study for the women. 20,000 women showed up. The vast majority of them had to walk on average 20 miles through the wilderness in the rain on mud paths. And what the ladies would do, Jill said, is they would get up really early in the mornings, take care of their families, and then walk the 20 miles through the jungles and things to get to the Bible study. And then 
that afternoon they had to make sure they ended in time because they'd sit there for hours. They would sit there for hours listening. And then they would walk back the 20 miles to take care of their families that night. And they did that for six days. Just to be able to hear someone tell them about Jesus. How far do you have to drive to get here today? Serious. We in America take so much for granted. And the reality is Christianity in America is about that deep. That deep. People flock to see Jesus, but they did it for the wrong reason. When they heard how many things He was doing, they came in. They wanted to see the show. They wanted the miracles. Now, in Ethiopia, they weren't doing any miracles. The only thing Jill did, she opened up the Bible, and she did pretty much like I did. She just got up and taught them for about four hours, five hours. They were wanting what they could get out of him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept. This is one of the funniest things I see in Scripture. That they should keep a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they crush him. In other words, he wanted a getaway car. Well, they didn't have cars there. So he said they were right there on the seashore, which was great because the, 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 the Sea of Galilee was like a natural amphitheater. It, it, the water magnified sound. So it carried great distance, and people were gathered there. And he said, keep a little boat, a small boat. Not one of the big fishing boats, a small boat. Handy, fast getaway, moves quickly. Uh, uh, lest they should crush him. For he, and Notice, for he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And notice, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him. And so he's lord of these sicknesses and disease. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. I find it interesting that the Pharisees and the scribes, who knew the word better than anybody else, didn't see it. But the demonic spirits said, You are the Son of God. But he did not want any connection or association with them. So, but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. I just want to throw this last little verse in, and I can't, I'll, I'll explain it next time, okay? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. Beelzebub was the Lord of filth, literally, the Lord of dung. He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. The demons were saying, you're the Son of God. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were saying, he, he's come from the Lord of filth. Question, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus? That's the most important question you'll ever answer. 
And you, you say, well, I'm not sure. No, you know. You've are, you, if you're honest, if you're intellectually honest, you already have made up your mind who you think he is. Some would say he was a good teacher. He was a rabbi. He was a very good man that God sent. That's impossible. It's impossible to say that Jesus was a very good man and a very good teacher who did a lot of very good things. He can't be that. Why? Because He said He was God. He said He could forgive sin. He said the works that He did, He did because of His Father. He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Now, if that is not true, if He is not God, if He is not the Son of God, if He is not the only Savior, because He Himself said, you don't get to the Father except through... He said that. You don't get to the Father. You don't get to heaven unless you come through Me. If that's not true, then He was one of the greatest liars who've ever lived. And he's not a good man then. He's a liar. Or as some have said, if he's not a liar, the only other option is he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's out there thinking he's something he's not. He's not a good man, he's just a crazy man. Here's your options. Some have said this. It's not unique for me. He's either a liar He's a lunatic, or He is Lord. Those are the only three options. Those are the only three options. To say He's a good man who did good things, no. If you don't accept Him and believe in Him as Lord, you're saying He's a liar, He's crazy. Badly deceived Himself. But He's not a good man. question. He is Lord. That's not open to debate. One day, everybody's going to understand that. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. That means He's in control. That means He's sovereign. That means He is God. Okay? But here's the question. Is He your Lord? He is Lord. But personally, is He yours? Have you surrendered to His Lordship? Have you acknowledged His Lordship? You can't make Him Lord of your life. Okay? I've heard some preachers extend it, but they come and make Jesus Christ the Lord. You can't make Him Lord. He is Lord. The only question is, have you surrendered to Him as Lord? Have you acknowledged Him as Lord? I want you to, I got it real quick, sum, sum this up, Tim. To say that He's your Lord means you've had that godly sorrow, grief over sin. And that godly sorrow has led you to repent of sin, which means to turn away from it. You just don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord and continue living the same way you've always lived. 
you turn away from those sins and say, Lord, I don't want to live that way anymore. I need your help. Repent of sin. Place your faith that whenever Jesus died on Calvary's cross, He did that for you personally to pay the price for your sin. Receive the wrath you deserve. He was buried. He rose again. And when He rose again, He did it to verify the Father accepted the price that He paid for you. And He's alive right now. And you believe that so strongly, so much trust in Him, I now surrender. Surrender. Submit to Him as Lord. Empty yourself of everything you are. And God, from this day forward, my life is not about me, it's about you. God, I need you to help me come to understand what it means that you are now going to come and live within me, to live your life within me. And help me to understand what it means that I live a life that is pleasing unto you, that puts you on display. And that's what it is. The religious leaders never got it. A few of them did, a few did. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea did. For the most part, they never got it. They died in their religiosity and will spend the eternity under the wrath of God in hell. And I want you to understand, I'm not going to shy away from this. And if you die without Christ, you die without ever in your life, coming to that place where God in grace helps you to repent, believe, and surrender. You will join them under the wrath of God, the judgment of God, forever in a place called hell. The good news is this. Today, if the Holy Spirit of God is helping you to understand, not just up here, but in here, what I've shared with you from God's Word today. All of your sin can be forgiven. All of your sin can be wiped out. Past, present, and future. And today, Jesus can give you a brand new life. Not just clean up the old one. Give you a life that is new. So that you become a new creation, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. That's available to you. And then my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've studied Bible prophecy pretty much my whole life. And when I say this, I'm not just saying a cliche. From everything I've studied in the Word, time is short. I think you would be shocked. We say, yeah, the Lord's come back and it's going to be soon. I think it would shock you to know how soon that is. Time is short. There's a lot of folks all around us. When the rapture happens and Christ returns for us, anyone who's ever heard the message of the gospel will never have a second chance. 
Never have work to do. We got work to do. Because most people have heard enough of the gospel so that they stand condemned in America, okay? In our community, they've heard enough of it so that they stand condemned. But they haven't had someone really come along beside them living the gospel to share the gospel so they could respond. No one's going to be saved apart from hearing the gospel and responding. We need to get busy. May the primary focus of Washington Baptist Church be glorifying God by making disciples. Making disciples starts with evangelism, sharing the gospel with those who are lost. Amen?